Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Happy holidays. Uh, just a reminder as we get going this week that the podcast is going to be taking a two-week break over the holidays. So there'll be no podcast on Monday, December 21st or the 28th. But we'll be back with a new episode on Monday, January 4th. So one more after today, and then we'll be on that two-week break. I'm going to jump right into Fantasy Football Update because we've got some good news this week. I'm currently, at the time of recording, on the verge of clinching first place for the regular season. Uh, Right now, I have a 49-point lead over my opponent going into Monday and Tuesday's games. Uh, I still have Terry McLaurin, who plays for Washington, still to play on Monday afternoon. And McLaurin has been a beast for me this year. So that could easily balloon to a 60- or a 70-point lead uh, for me over my opponent. Now, my opponent does have four players remaining, but... Only one, uh, Ezekiel Elliott, poses any real possible threat to scoring a huge number of points. So a good day from McLaurin this afternoon, and things are looking all but clinched. But of course, um, as I've said before, I take nothing for granted when it comes to fantasy football. (laughs) Lots of podcasts out there, I know. So thanks for choosing to listen again this week, and welcome to any new listeners out there. Uh, for joining me for if you're joining me for the first time I also want to remind you of the YouTube channel where uh, the episodes the full-length episodes are also posted so I do appreciate you subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Amazon etc but the YouTube channel also has the video versions of the interviews that I do I usually post those a couple of weeks after the podcast first airs but just know that those are there in case there's a clip or something that you might want to show during a staff meeting to engage in some discussion. Of course, we've had some great guests so far this fall, and uh, there may be some things that you want to, you know, maybe you want to take a clip of something Anthony Muhammad said and have a conversation about racial equity, uh, or, or maybe you, you want to take a clip from uh, Cassandra's conversation today and, and talk a little bit about uh, c- common assessments, or, or Katie Martin's, how do we become more learner-centered in our innovation and all of that. So just again, know that the YouTube channel is there. Uh, You can subscribe to that as well. Full-length episodes are there, but also the video versions of the interviews I do are also posted there a couple of weeks after the episodes first air. Today, I have my dear friend and close colleague, Cassandra Erkins, who is joining me to talk about collaborative common assessments, uh, common assessments in general, but also during this time of the pandemic. And as many of you know, of course, Cassie, uh, Nicole, and I work really, really closely together in our assessment work. So it's always fun to interview a close colleague and try to put my podcast hat on uh, and go through that process. Uh, In Assessment Corner this week, I received a question about what to do with year-end standards or year-end expectations, specifically in a music class. So we're going to explore what to do with year-end expectations and how to assess early in the school year. So that's today's plan. Lots to get to. So let's get to it. my conversation with Cassandra Erkins coming up shortly. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by saying it's time to slam the brakes on hyperbole. To some degree, I get it. Look, we know that when people say they're starving or dying of thirst, that for most people, they don't mean it literally, right? There are just some hyperbolic expressions that have all become an accepted part of our vernacular. 
It reminds me a little bit of the Louis C.K. joke about language. And yes, I'm aware he has fallen out of favor in recent years, but his assertion about language still holds true when he joked about why we always have to go top shelf with our language. Why, for example, he says, do we have to refer to a basket of chicken wings as amazing? Like, where do you go from there? Or why some dude will refer to his friend as a genius simply because he brought an extra cup in case they needed it. Like, what's left for real genius? So when discussing silly things or things where there really is no definitive answer, then who cares, right? It's all in the name of trying to win, say, an unwinnable debate or make some outrageous assertion like, that's the best movie I've ever seen in my life. Like, so what? No one's asking you for the details of the criteria upon which you made that judgment, and more importantly, no one cares. But the problem is that this becomes habitual and starts to slip into conversations that are more serious and those requiring more nuance. I'm not sure why hyperbole seems, at least from my perspective, to have become so readily accepted and consistently used. Maybe it's social media. I seem to mention social media a lot on this podcast, so maybe there's a, a future don't at me about social media coming up at some point. But social media, we know, rewards hyperbole. No one goes viral with a post on social media entitled, here's why both sides have a point. Right? So that, that never happens. So when we look at hyperbole in general, we start to see this jump out. We start to see that for example, every politician we oppose has to be the most corrupt in the history of Western civilization. Or if anybody has an alternative view as to how schools should be either run or funded, they must hate kids or be anti-teacher. Or if you take a slightly different stance when it comes to the prospect of dismantling racial inequities, you get told that you're tone deaf or you get canceled or you get told to check your privilege. Look at the defund the police slogan that emerged in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder this past summer. Now, I know there were a lot of people who just took that slogan on face value, denounced it, they denounced it immediately, and opposed it without trying to understand what was truly behind it. Well, those people were just looking for an excuse. A 30-second search on the interweb would quickly inform you that a defund the police slogan doesn't actually mean eliminate the police, and that it actually means a 360-degree reformation of what policing looks like in the 21st century. Yes, there are some who mean that slogan literally. But for most, it means a halt on the expansion of police officers and a redistribution of funds toward essential social services that are often underfunded, right? Things like unemployment, education, mental health care, youth services, housing, etc. So if the slogan caused you to recoil, then you were just looking for an excuse to recoil in the first place. It's just an ounce just to look for, right? But I think a fair question to ask is, why give those on the periphery an excuse to recoil in the first place? Why give yourself yet another hurdle to overcome to reach those who need convincing, thereby creating a more difficult pathway toward consensus? Again, I know nuance doesn't play well on social media, nor does it have the shock and awe impact that fits neatly on a protest sign or a t-shirt. But the problem is we may lose as many people as we gain with our pithy slogans. 
exaggeration seems to have slipped into our professional conversations in education as well, where we actually know some truths and we actually know some limits. I've almost got to the point in education where hyperbole, especially when it comes to educational assertions, actually causes me to tune people out and not take their assertions seriously. And I get that I might be contradicting myself here, but my frustration comes from the fact that there are things we know and some things we don't. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the conversation about feedback, and I've talked about feedback in past episodes, where on social media, and again, yeah, here I go again about social media, social media seems to suggest that five inanimate letters of the alphabet represent the root of all evil, and that if you eliminate grades and only provide feedback, that you'll have a learning explosion. Well, I'm sorry, it's just not that simple. Feedback is far too complicated and far too nuanced to be reduced to an oversimplified equation of feedback minus grades equals learning. And please spare me the Ruth Butler quotes, okay? No disrespect to Ruth Butler at all, as her research was very important to our work, but those studies were from 1987 and 1988. Again, there's nothing wrong with that either, but just some perspective. 1987-1988 was my junior year in college. This is now my 30th year in education. So what are we saying here? That a whole generation, this seminal research comes out in the late 1980s, and an entire generation of educators just ignores it? Until the, you know what, the 2010s, and then suddenly we've discovered the secret sauce. If it was that simple, you'd think we would have talked about it earlier. Now look, I'm not advocating for grades over feedback. In fact, I don't know anybody who really does. Grades are about verification, about measurement, about the summative purpose of assessment. Feedback, in essence, is a strategy or an intervention. It's the formative purpose, right? Strategies and interventions are how we increase achievement. So expecting grades to raise achievement is an erroneous thought to begin with. But to listen to Twitter and other social media platforms, you'd think that there are armies of people out there advocating for grades to raise achievement. I know there are some people like that out there, but the way that it's described on social media you'd think it was everyone. I know that to gain followers, retweets, and likes, we have to reach for the extremes now. And you can see this whole game of one-upsmanship happening over time. I've seen this over the last 20 years, right? So two decades ago, we started saying things like, well, we've started using formative assessment. And then later on, it became, oh, formative assessment. We don't even call them formative assessments. We just call them assessment for learning strategies. And then, oh yeah, well, we don't even use the word assessment anymore. We just call it practice. Oh yeah, we don't call it anything. We just teach and interact with our students. Oh yeah, and it just keeps going and going and going, always trying to outflank one another. All these folks out there pounding the desks with the Ruth Butler studies, and again, I'm not criticizing her work, never seem to bring up Kluger and Denisi, 1996, Hattie and Timperley, 2007, Valerie Shute, 2008, or Marie's, Maria Ruiz Primo and Min Lee from 2013, where they said in their research, quote, the result of decades of research on feedback and learning offers near unanimous agreement on the importance of feedback in improving student learning, but it appears that as researchers, we know less about formative feedback than would have been predicted. Our degree of not knowing, however, must be appreciated as the accumulation of knowledge resulting from 30 years of research on feedback. So we know it works, but we don't know the degree. We don't know as much as we thought we did, right? 
But you wouldn't know that last part to be true if you listened to the echo chamber on Edu Twitter. Enough with the hyperbole, honestly. Hyperbole actually, from my perspective, weakens your position in four ways. First, hyperbole reveals both a lack of experience and a lack of depth of knowledge. Oversimplifying something complex reveals that one clearly hasn't done their homework. And for me, the more I've learned about assessment, about teaching, about learning, about social-emotional learning, RTI, etc., the more I continue to need to learn because there is so much nuance in our work in education. Two, hyperbole is self-indulgent and reveals that attention is the priority, not serious discourse. Hyperbole for me illustrates a lack of seriousness about the conversation. Remember my blow it up story from episode five about the superintendent at that meeting I attended. Trying to outflank or stand out while sacrificing the actual truth is the epitome of ego. Three, hyperbole harms your argument. The assertion, for example, that grades stop learning is not true. That causal relationship has never been shown. And you know, correlation is not causation. And it can't be true just based on the eye test, because despite the existence of grades, students are still learning. Now walk into any school and you'll see that. And again, I'm on your side. You know, I'm a huge advocate for using feedback in absence of grades and scores to advance learning and, to, and I make that assertion all the time. If you're familiar with my work at all, you, you know that. But it has to be done in absence of hyperbole. It has to be done in absence of these outrageous assertions that just simply aren't true. And four, hyperbole actually harms your credibility. You know, assertions that can't or aren't replicated by colleagues bring a disappointment in either the strategy or the person. So somebody may look at you and say, hey, it didn't do what, what you said it was going to do. It didn't have the same effect. So why should I continue to listen to you? Or they may be sort of self-inflicting some sort of negative view of themselves by saying things like, you know, I must suck because the edgy superhero on Twitter said they did this and it worked really well, but it didn't work for me. So I must be less than as a teacher. I mean, over-promising with simplicity is what advertisers do. It shouldn't be how we have serious discussions about complex strategies in education. What I'm saying is, you don't need hyperbole to make a strong argument for that which there is already a strong argument. If the evidence says so, then say so. If the evidence falls short, be honest about that too. That's not weak. That's a mature, experienced, and informed approach. And, ironically, that is what people both want and need from those to whom they are looking to for guidance and inspiration. I get it. The followers, the retweets, the attention that hyperbole brings is alluring. I understand that. And all of us, including myself, can fall victim to that from time to time. I wish sometimes the research I consume was as definitive as the people make it out to be on social media, but it's not. That's what makes education such a challenging profession. Again, the argument I'm making is that by pulling back on the hyperbole, you'll actually make a stronger case for that which you are advocating, and 
you'll end up becoming a more credible source that people can trust when you actually do make research-informed definitive assertions for which there is no alternative. But if we keep going top shelf, we are in the long run going to lose more credibility than we gain, and we're going to end up doing a disservice to that which we are strongly advocating for. Joining me today is one of my dearest friends and one of my closest colleagues, Cassandra Erkins, who is an author, speaker, and consultant in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Uh, Cassandra, along with myself and Nicole, is one of the architects of the Solution Tree uh, Assessment Center. She has been a prolific voice in assessment over the last two decades. She is the author of several books, including three that we have co-authored together with Nicole, as well as countless book chapters and uh, for anthologies and other publications. She is a prolific writer as well, and is also a sensational workshop facilitator who devises some of the most thoughtful workshop activities that I've ever been a part of. She and Nicole have been schooling me on those workshop activities for years now. Uh, Cassie and I met years ago at the Assessment Training Institute when we were both presenters at that conference. And uh, we often talk about the story of, of seeing each other every six months and saying, you know, we should work together. And then we'd leave the summer conference and then we'd come back in December and we'd say, you know, we should work together. <laughs> and, and well, it finally happened. And Cassie and I and Nicole joined forces with Nicole to, uh, uh, to form the Solution Tree Assessment Center and the rest, as they say, is, is history. So Cassie, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, so welcome. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks, Tom. It's a thrill to be with you. And thanks for those kudos. It's always a pleasure to learn from you too. <laughs> thanks. Uh, and for listeners, obviously, we are friends, we are colleagues. And uh, other than this year, because of COVID, Cassie and I have spent a tremendous amount of time together. But I'm, I'm going to put my podcast host hat on for today and, and try to keep this focused uh, as, a, as an interview, as opposed to a casual conversation that we just have countless times. So uh, we're going to focus today on what I think is, uh, I mean, Cassie has strengths in 360 degrees, but common assessments are obviously an area that, that Cassandra is uh, an expert in and certainly has a lot to offer both in sort of the COVID situation, but also independent of COVID. So I wanna begin Cassie with, you know, you wrote the book Collaborative Common Assessments and you are a vocal advocate for the use of common assessments in schools. So if, if schools are wanting to move in the direction of common assessments, or if they're feeling frustrated uh, by what they see as an inefficiency or an ineffectiveness with what they're doing so far. So they've tried it, but they're frustrated. So independent of COVID, because we'll talk about COVID momentarily, what are some of the foundational pieces that schools should seek to have in place to maximize the promise of collaborative common assessments? What are those foundational pieces for schools? Well, I'm going to say three things. I would say there's three big pieces that need to be in place. The first is context. It's so important that people know the why because you could easily use common assessments as a weapon instead of a tool. So what are we gonna do with the data? What's the purpose for gathering this information? And the work that I try to do with you, Tom and Nicole through the assessment center is to really focus on hope, efficacy and achievement. Like, are we using the assessments to get the right things to happen? Not only for students, but also for our teachers. But John Hattie found that a major theme is when teachers need to discuss and evaluate and plan their teaching in the light of feedback based on their own evidence, that's when we can get the greatest growth. 
And so that would be the vision. Like we're trying to maximize the power of our instruction. So let's work together and learn from each other about our best instructional strategy. So know the why. The second piece is make sure that our teachers have a really strong foundation with assessment literacy, that they understand what we're supposed to be doing with the design and with the feedback so that it's actually making um, a big difference and it's causing growth rather than simply evaluating and denoting who fits in what category. And then finally, the last piece would be the infrastructure. And this is the piece that often is missing and makes teachers the most frustrated. Like we're doing the work, we're looking at the data, but there's no system in place to intervene when kids aren't getting it. There's no schedule change. There's no um, time for us to meet to actually do this heavy lifting. So you have to have the schedule set up so that teachers have time to meet and plan and look at the data. You have to have the protocols in place to support teachers so that they can make these decisions quickly and, and with some sense of ease. And then you actually have to look at the systems that are getting in their way. Like you can't put kids into an intervention and expect them to improve if you're not gonna allow them to get the grade that shows they improve. So you have to look at the little details, like what are the hurdles that are blocking kids from getting to the highest level of achievement? And can we examine those carefully and remove them? So we build systems and we remove hurdles. So those would be the three. Yeah. It's interesting because it, you know the, the conversations about data and interventions and all of that. So, so often I hear teachers talk about, oh, common assessments, that's just trying to undercut my autonomy or undercut my opportunity to, to do my own thing or to add my flair. And I think missing the point about uh, the, the collaborative part, the, the, the professional learning part that comes with those conversations. So when you think about uh, common assessments, uh, you know, in the context of COVID, uh, so let's talk about now since, you know, basically March when everybody's shut down and, and quarantined and then and then we're into hybrid models and we're into virtual learning and we're back and forth and some schools are face-to-face -face and there's all of this happening. Uh, so a two-part question would be within the context of COVID. One is, COVID-19 or not, uh, there have to be some aspects of common assessments that are universal and timeless. So what are the aspects that hold up even, even in this situation that we're in? So let's start with that. And then the second part is, what are some ways that schools you've seen uh, or, or advice you would have for schools who make important adjustments given the COVID-19 situation? So part one, what holds up and what stands the test of time regardless of pandemic? Part two, what adjustments are necessary or can be made to continue to make the collaborative common assessment process a productive one and, and, and fruitful when it comes to student learning? Great questions, thank you. Um, so what stands up, whether it's COVID or not, is that um, we really need to help our teachers focus on what's most essential. There's way too much to teach and not enough time to do it. So let's get a laser-like focus, let's prioritize. And in the era of COVID, that's never been more important. Like now with limited time and limited resources, we better make sure we've got the most essential of the most essential. And we're even gonna need to start bundling some of these standards so that we can get through stuff and really make sure we're getting kids on grade level in this face of a COVID slide, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that holds up is how will we know? And actually what happened with COVID was it brought to light the fact that some of our assessments, because we had the luxury of having kids sit in front of us, we knew they were doing it themselves, but now we don't. So when they're behind the screen, are they texting someone? Are they asking mom? Are they Googling? How do we know they know? And so it's brought to light the issue of, do we have the best assessment designs? Do we have sufficient? 
and accurate evidence of what a child knows. And as a result, I would say teachers have had to work hard to think about what's a better assessment. And again, it's a laser-like focus. Like, could we ask fewer questions that cause deeper thinking and moved our students from just being knowledge parrots into being seekers who created or produced new knowledge. Mm -hmm. So they're not just regurgitating, they're having to think. And that's asked us to think about the questions that we're writing. Are we getting better questions for our, our students? Um, and then we always have to think about what do we, how do we know and what are we gonna do when they don't know it, especially now? What are our interactions when the kids aren't even available to us? Um, how are we going to make sure that they're learning in spite of all of this chaos? So it's really paramount now that we gather data quickly and we look at that information so we can become agile and try to be as responsive as possible before it's too late. Because we've already got this COVID slide going on. So how are we gonna really focus? And then what are we gonna do for the kids who already have it? Those four questions that a PLC would answer are questions whether you are a PLC or not. That's the work that guides good instruction to get really focused on what kids need. Um, so what happened when the pandemic hit was it brought to light a lot of those gaps. Um, many systems have tried these things that I think are most effective. So what I've seen works in the situation is treat every assessment as, as if it's going to be virtual. So even if you're in a hybrid and you've got some kids in the second grade classroom and some kids at home, if you treat every assessment as if it's virtual, then you're ready if we flip back and forth no matter what, and you can still engage students in collaborative learning. So we can have our students in the classroom partnering through a hyperdoc or something like that with mm -hmm. students who are virtual. So we can make sure that all of the kids are moving together and we don't widen the chasm between the haves and the have nots from those who aren't with us face to face. Limit our assessments, um, not doing too many. One of the big issues we've seen is kids are overwhelmed. We have to be honest, right now, everybody is under stress and everybody is feeling a tremendous amount of pressure, especially our kids who don't have the knowledge or resources to manage this kind of emotional burden. So let's limit the number of assessments that we're doing and make sure that their assessments kids would want to get to. I think we should try to put Disney out of business by being the most engaging place kids could possibly be right now. Get them thinking about the right stuff so that they're using their mental energy in a positive way. And then actually really needing to improve our grading practices. Um, I heard you have the podcast with Tom Gusky and yeah. you talked about narrowing that range of grading and making sure that, you know, we're getting the best information in the, in the best way possible and getting to more equity from one teacher to the next with how we're scoring these kinds of things. Right. Right. It's, it's been so I, listeners, you know, this is episode 12 and uh, I think listeners, if you're, if you've been listening all along, you, you are hearing these consistent themes from so many of the experts I've had on about prioritization about you know quality over quantity in terms of assessments. So Cassie, you just you just echoing and, and talking about some, some such important aspects of navigating the pandemic. How have you seen, and, and I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit here, have you seen examples or hypothesize about how schools in a virtual environment might still from the teacher perspective, how do we collaborate? How do we make this how do we co-score or how do we make this a meaningful experience, even though we might not be in a face-to-face -face situation in our collaborative team meetings? Great question. So just yesterday, I was working with some middle school teachers and we were actually putting up pieces of work right on the screen. We were talking about the types of mistakes kids were making. We were showing our questions. 
We were talking about whether or not we'd actually define terms for kids. So we were really having a powerful, reflective conversation as various teachers. And we went through different um, grade levels. It was middle school. So we had grade six showed their assessment. We talked about the questions. Grade seven showed some of the student work. So there's all kinds of different ways to do that. But it's about um, finding the space and then making sure that we maximize our time and putting the right work up to talk about it. how are we going to get kids to success later? Not right. just let's just sit and talk about this stuff, but we got something to accomplish by the end of this next four weeks. So what are we going to do now to get ready for that? Yeah. So all of our conversations seem to be very purposeful. Was that was that just through Zoom or was there another platform just through Zoom and sharing screens? Just through Zoom and sharing screens. We were all yeah. in different spaces. Yeah, that's um that you know, again, sometimes it's just if you have the habit and you have the desire and you understand the impact it'll have, you'll kind of find ways to make that happen. And that's not to, to say that folks that are in stressful situations where they can't collaborate, that it's their fault. We're not saying that, but certainly by building the habit, schools that have those habits are are able to sustain them in the best way possible given the limitations of of what you know, not being face-to-face -face, uh, has. So um, we, you talked a little bit of, about this. And, and so let's, let's pick up on that theme because this was kind of in your previous answer, but, you know, obviously collaborative common assessments are ideal if they are in, you know, a PLC at work kind of model, so to speak, like the collaborative teams within the PLC would have kind of a thorough and predictable routine established. But I'm thinking about teachers, not every school has implemented, say, the orthodoxy of a, a PLC model, but are thinking about common assessments. Maybe common assessments is their entry point. Maybe down the road, there'll be a PLC school. We don't know that. But without a PLC model or a framework, how might a motivated group of teachers go about this collaborative common assessment process? That's also a great question. I've actually met teachers who've done that. They've decided that the research is strong and that they need to be doing this and that they would benefit from it. So they've found a network of interested colleagues, help them build the why, because nobody's going to just jump in for no reason, right? So find right. that network, even if it's virtual, even if you're reaching out to teachers in a different system nearby you, but find that network and then look for opportunities to connect. What are the most feasible, right? The best times and the most feasible ways that we could connect and then really get clear about what are your um, shared resources, especially if we're in a virtual situation. So are we gonna use like Microsoft Word? Are we gonna use uh, in OneDrive or are we gonna use Google Docs? What are we gonna do? But where are we gonna house our resources? And then let's start doing the process of asking the four questions, like what's most important? As we look at, for example, the British Columbia curriculum, like where do we think we really need to be focusing on this? Or as we look at the state standards, whatever it might be. And then um, really thinking, Thinking big, like what are we trying to accomplish, but starting small. For me, a common formative assessment could be a single question. So let's agree, and we don't even have to be teaching the same text. So let's say it's social studies and we wanna be looking at whether or not kids can argue from evidence. You could all be in a different passage and you could actually be saying, okay, but here's my passage and here's the question and we could approve each other's questions. Yep, that's gonna get us to the right level of rigor. That's gonna get the right information. And then we get the evidence and we'd say, okay, so when kids can't argue from evidence, what's getting in the way? So we're going to start small and we're going to engage in um, like data moments if we're not going to have full data meetings. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start to really unpack when kids don't understand what's getting in their way so that we can make strategic choices. Right. Can we circle back to that for a moment? Because I think that is one of the most misunderstood parts of, 
of common assessments is that when people talk about common assessments or they hear about common assessments, they often think about these epic moments that happen every three weeks or so. And you very quickly, and I understand why, but you very quickly went over the idea, it could be one question. So let's expand on that a little bit, because I think that is something that gets a lot of, it gets, it gets underserviced, if you will, or underutilized as far as what is a common assessment and how you could use one question or just have one pivotal moment that is infused. So maybe talk a little bit more about how you help coach schools or teachers on this idea of, of, of a, a common assessment on a smaller scale. I want our reflective conversations to be so amazing, so reflective, so insightful um, that teachers actually levitate leaving the meeting. Like they can't wait to get back to their classroom because they've got new information. Those really big paper pencil tests that are hard to navigate and put all the data together, those are too late and they're too big. And if a kid don't, doesn't get it, you have to go back and do the whole thing. So better is the small chunk, right? And, and you can get a lot of information from a really good question. So one strategy that I, I like to pose is to say, let's get really clear. What's our skill? So let's say our skill is draw conclusions. I can draw conclusions. Then let's, how would, how would we define what a kid does when they draw conclusions? They look at both the implicit and the explicit information and they draw an accurate interpretation of what the author intended. Right. So if that's the definition now, what when kids can't do it, what's getting in their way? So we would use a single question. We'd pull the all the ugly evidence together and we'd start to put it into piles like these are good cards. They're right. They're good conclusions. These are bad cards. Now let's take those cards and let's sort them into piles. These kids only looked at explicit information. They didn't have any of the implicit or the inferences. These kids had insufficient evidence. These kids had the right evidence, but they weren't reasoning the right way because each one of those types of errors requires a different instructional response. So when I can help teams look at a single question and start to get into the meat of what they're looking for, then it kind of takes off and people get really excited. Like, I want more of that because that helps me be a better teacher. Mm -hmm. So those pivotal moments that, you know, you and I, Nicole, talk so much about is just those, those moments where we make those adjustments, those maneuvers, and being able to just Ha have it happen in a, in a moment's notice. That that smaller scale sort of granular common assessment is something I think folks really overlook at times. And I, I love the fact that you you brought that up. The other one I want to just pick up on misunderstandings. I've also heard this one, and I'm going to set you up for a response. And I know you've heard this one as well. Uh, you're at a conference, you finish your session, somebody comes up to you and says, you know, Cassandra, we, we already do common assessments because we all do the same unit test at the end of our units. Um, how do you respond to that person? So I know with kindness and finesse, but how do you <laughs> respond to that person? <laughs> yeah, so there's so much more to it. And this is not a unit test. And it's not a test that you didn't write. And it's not a, it's not a checking off the box activity. It's uh, being very, very thoughtful and very careful and actually focusing on, so we wrote about this in our book, right? Growing Tomorrow's Citizens in Today's mm -hmm. Classrooms. That switch between, are we using, are we teach, using skills to teach content or are we using content to teach skills? So if we're using content to teach skills, now teachers have to think differently. And so common for me does not mean exact same. Right. 
Common for me means we have the same standards that we're working toward. We have the same criteria for success. We have the same expectations and targets, but we can have different texts. We can even have different questions as long as we're using the same measurements. So when we look at the evidence, do we see kids doing good work when it comes to skills? And so now I want teachers to think differently about their entire assessment design. Like, are we going after the skills, the 21st century skills that matter most to our kids? Because you and I both know that in today's world, kids really do need to be knowledge producers, not just knowledge regurgitators. And right. so I want them to think critically, to communicate accurately to and effectively, to collaborate. So we have to start designing our assessments that direction. Yeah. So my, my response when people say, but we gave the same test is, yes, but did you get good information out of it? Did it really change you as a teacher, because if it didn't, then that, that's not the point. Right, right. So, so nothing, nothing wrong with a common summative assessment. If, but if it's not right. helping you grow as a teacher, how how effective were my instructional strategies? What do we do next next time we teach the unit, or what do we do in response? Because this is a a skill that runs longitudinally through the class then we're really just talking about a standardized assessment. So on the one hand, we lament standardized testing. And then on the other hand, we create uh, the exact same test for the same kids, for all the same kids under the same conditions at the same time of day. It sounds a lot like a, a standardized environment. I wanna pick up on this because this leads me to my next question. You were talking about how we're assessing the same skill, assessing the same criteria. And I suspect that's going to be a similar answer to my next question, which is singleton teachers. If I'm the... If I'm the only drama teacher, or if I'm the only if I if I'm the only teacher in my school who teaches this subject, how do I participate in the common assessment process with my colleagues? You know, I think teachers who are singletons have the hardest time getting started, but they have the easiest time after they get it. Um, they're, they're more ideally positioned to flip it and to be more about using their content to teach skill. So I've actually worked with um, career and tech teachers who now you've got family and consumer science, you've got architecture, you've got agriculture, you've got all these teachers who don't teach the same stuff at all. And one teacher on the team might teach six different things. And so now what do I mean by common assessments? So can we look at problem solving? Can we look at some of those big skills? And now I can have kids do problem solving with a bread recipe and you've got your kids doing problem solving with a, a soybean problem in the fields, but we're still talking about, okay, but how are kids doing with the problem solving process? Mm -hmm. Do we see them actually following the steps and making good decisions as a result? And where, where are they getting hung up and what do we need to do with our instruction to help them be better at that? Mm -hmm. Because here's what we know. When they leave our care, information will be available already. It already is, but information will be available to them should they have a new problem. They can go find information, but do they have the skills to navigate it? That's what mm -hmm. we need them to be able to do. Right. And it seems to be the more skill-based that the, the focus is. So if we have those, as we wrote about, the means and end switching places, and we're focused on those 21st century skills, it is definitely a way for... Um, for singleton teachers to be more participatory in the common assessment process because we kind of break down those subject silos, right? And so to that point, I think what's hard is when I've always taught language arts or math the way I've always taught it, how could I let go of that content piece that I'm so comfortable with and mm -hmm. flip it to be more about skill? That's a mm -hmm. big shift. And because you and I might have something in common in the math department, 
I don't have to make that shift because we can make our assessments about what we've always done. So that's why I'm saying a singleton teacher actually on the other side of understanding the shift has an easier time of making it work because they're not so mired in it being about the content parts. Yeah, that's and that that content hurdle is a big one for singleton teachers. If they can get them past that, they really, as you say, they can flourish with with the common assessments, uh, common assessment work for sure. Let's shift a little bit to principals and and district leaders now. Who, you know, let's say they attended your workshop or your institute or the conference. They're all in with common assessments. They see the value. They understand uh, to a point. They understand the complexities and and want to implement common assessments in their schools, but can't seem to move the needle in their context. They just can't seem to get. Uh, a cohort of teachers interested. So how do they start to maybe get teachers' attention? What are some ways that they can make a compelling case for why common assessments are such an essential part of the overall assessment strategy in a school? I like that in your question, you started with the very thing that's first, like develop the compelling case because mm-hmm. people aren't gonna do it just because you said, go do it, right? So. It's a both and. Um, I want to create the rationale because clarity precedes competence. Like, why are we trying to do this? And I wanna make it about the big why. Like, this is about increasing achievement for kids and teachers. We're gonna be the best we could ever be. We're gonna be the place kids can't stand to miss every day. We're gonna be, and I want them to have that really exciting vision that draws people in. But the other thing we know is sometimes you have to, and Doug Reeves talks about this a lot, Sometimes you have to behave your way into a new belief. So start small, help teachers pull out a a little single question and then see if you can sit at the table with them to tease out the the deeper missing pieces. Like, why did that happen? Why did that student do that? What do you think might've been going on in their brain at that time? And get teachers to have those kinds of conversations that make them hypothesize and guess and strategize because that's where the joy is. I, mm-hmm. What I've learned is um, it's kind of like kids in a candy shop. You cannot put student work in front of a teacher and ask them to be quiet. Because oftentimes I'll put work out on the table and say, in a minute, we're going to talk about student work, but don't talk about it yet. And they will not wait. They'll pick up <laughs> that work and they want to talk about it right now. So yeah. if we can see them looking at that work and really talking about it and getting some insights from it, that's where the joy is. And teachers tend to want more of that. So show them what it looks like by modeling. And then I would say the other other big piece, and this is a big one, um, empower, 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 empower. If you want your teams to function as decision-making teams, then do not make their decisions for them. Do not answer their questions when they say, what do you want us to do? Invite them to explore, invite them to come up with answers. So lead with yes, if, yes, when, and yes, maybe. Um, and then don't answer the question. So here's how that sounds. Um, this was the principal in an elementary school and the fifth grade team had decided that they were going to just use one long extension opportunity for the entire semester because they were pretty sure it was gonna be the same kids, just the gifted kids. So let's just do a project and once a week they can dip in and work on it. She knew that was the wrong thing for them to do, but she also knew I cannot say no because teachers will just look at me and say, well, if you know the answers then stop making us figure it out, just tell us what you want us to do. So she said, yes, if the data prove it works, I'm coming back in two weeks and I want the data. So Mm -hmm. indeed, she went back in two weeks and she said, is your system working? And they said, no, we had to give that up after the first week. And she said, really, tell me why. And they said, well, we figured out it wasn't going to be the same kids who needed extension every single time. 
So we couldn't keep that system. So she allowed them to use their own evidence to make those decisions. So set your parameters and your guidelines and your resources and tools to help the teams and then empower them. Yeah. It really also, I think, uh, and I don't know if this is more a question than a statement, but you know, you and Nicole and I often talk about the importance of being assessment literate and for leaders, you know, to engineer those opportunities. It just speaks to that instructional leadership and understanding sound assessment. Not that you have to be the expert in the school, but to know enough to engineer those opportunities to participate meaningfully with teachers. And that not only builds your credibility, but it really helps you move that compelling case along, doesn't it? Um, this yeah. idea of being literate with assessment practices. And one of the things that I just want your listeners to know is that that develops over time. Yeah. You can't do all the research and just sit down and be assessment literate. It's practice-based. You have to try something. Right. So be willing to give yourself permission to fail. Just don't hold it against the kids when we write bad questions, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> You can get really good results using bad assessments. If you all have the same laser-like focus and you're helping the kids do it, you can get amazing results when you start writing better assessments. Yeah. So start with what you have, but as you go through it and you learn more, be willing to change those assessments and to make yeah. them even better. So you're getting the best information imaginable. Yeah, it's... Um... It takes time. You're, you're absolutely right. I think that sometimes people want to rush their, their, their assessment literacy or their growth. And I often tell people, you know, this assessment journey for me began 17 years ago and, and it's still in the making. It's still in the development. And uh, I learn something new all the time. And, and so it's, a, it's a work in progress. That's for sure. Um, okay. So let's, let's finish up here with uh, some, some look fors or some make sures, if you will. Uh, what are some of the make sures or look fors that teachers and schools should keep in mind so that they can avoid, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is how do they avoid a superficial approach to the common assessment? Because a lot of people could say, well, we do common assessments. Well, so do we, but one school does it with, with depth. Another school, it's more of a surface level. It's tick the box. Yeah. We can now say that we do it. So how do you know that you are a robust, meaningful uh, collaborative common assessment team as opposed to just giving it a, a superficial approach? So one part one is um, there should be as much reflection as there is planning. And far too often we put all of our efforts into the planning part and we don't get to the reflection part. The reflection part is where the deep learning is. And so that's missing. The L in PLC is missing if all we're ever doing is planning, planning, planning in each meeting. So I have five questions to ask the, the listeners, five questions to think about. Uh, number one, are you learning to how to be a better teacher at every team meeting? Because if you're not learning how to be a better teacher, then what's the point of going to all those team meetings, right? So are you making yourself vulnerable in that process of, of question one, learning to be a better teacher? Are you sharing resources and expanding your repertoire and challenging yourself? All of that is part of, are you being a better, are you becoming a better teacher? Are you, num question number two, are you eliciting intriguing findings in your data? Or are they just numbers and you're moving kids around and giving them labels and sending them off to be fixed somewhere? Right. So are you actually eliciting something that causes you to think differently about skills and, and instruction and so on? Are your data conversations inspiring different actions? Are they generating enthusiasm in your team? And do you love the assessments you employ? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, and most importantly, do your students love the assessments you're employing? Because if you're just doing it to go through the motion, use the data, record it, and send it out into the world, it's not making a difference. So I'm trying to use the process to get people to love learning. And yeah. is the happening? And then the last question is, does each rotation of assess, analyze, reflect, re- respond, motivate you to get to the next rotation? Like when you end one meeting, do you leave and say, okay, let's try this and let's get back together and see if it worked? Because if that's not what's happening, then something's wrong with your protocols or your processes. I'm not going to say something's wrong with you or your team, but I'm going to say check in with the systems that you're using and the conversations that you're having because it's supposed to be inspirational. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, sometimes it's an uphill climb for sure, but the energy and excitement around assessment is assessment the opportunity for us to grow professionally. Is the are our students excited about the opportunity to know where they are rather than being intimidated? This goes right back to the to the conversation we had at the very beginning. Just that you made mention of hope and efficacy. What is our what what is our assessment routine or our assessment systems doing to the energy and excitement about learning for our students? And are we also excited as learners as well? So uh, to me, that's that's great advice and great questions uh, to ask. Um, you know, I often say to people, I hope we can do this again, but Cassie, I know we are going to do this again. And at some point I'm hoping that uh, Nicole will join us and maybe we'll do some roundtable stuff when we eventually get back to traveling and get to see each other at our conferences and institutes. Um, but I've really in, enjoyed uh, having you uh, and, and listening to some of the advice uh, that you have for folks really exploring the common assessment process. But we're gonna finish uh, today with a little bit of fun as I always do. Um, I'm going to ask you uh, a few lighthearted questions. I've got five questions to finish up with you. And these are ways for listeners to get to know you a little bit personally. Um, nothing too intrusive, but just some fun questions that'll put you on the spot and give you a chance to share some insight into Cassandra Erkins, the person uh, with listeners. And then we've got one final question to finish up with as well. So first question is, what is the last fiction book that you read? The last fiction book that I read is um, Murder at the Dolphin Hotel. Oh, okay. Who's the author? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> it was a brand new well, author for me, and I was just okay. uh, trying to pick her. It's a series. It starts with that book, and okay. I decided I'm not going to read the series, but that's the last okay. one I read. That's the last one you read, yeah. No, it's for, as, I, as I know you so well, I know that I'm in the same boat that the, the, the vast majority of our reading is nonfiction. It's work around assessment, it's research, and it's other people's books and things like that. So um, I asked the question about fiction because, you know, for me, it probably would be three years ago or something like that. <laughs> um, so here's one. Do you ever eat food that is past its expiration date if it still smells and looks fine? Like what's your, thre- what's, what's your threshold? How do you decide? <laughs> It cannot smell bad or look bad. Or if you take a small nibble in the corner and it doesn't taste right, like a rancid nut, then you throw it away. Then you throw it away. I wonder sometimes if we, if we, if we even know that it's past the expiration date when we eat it, right? (laughs) Well, just the other day I took some, so one of our strategies is to freeze things. And so Mm -hmm. we freeze cheese because we don't go through it fast enough. And I was making something with nachos and I needed the shredded cheese. I took it out of the freezer and I looked at the expiration date and I thought, 
my family's going to look at this and think it's expired when the truth is I literally just took it out of the freezer, but the date on it says it's expired. So right. <laughs> you never really know with those dates. Yeah. You take your chances, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, question three, uh, when it's just you, your car and the open road, what song do you belt out loud every single time? This is your go-to Cassie Rockstar in her car. What's the song that you belt out loud every single time you're driving? I don't have one. Isn't that terrible? I really don't have one. I drive in my car with no sound on and I'm in really? my place. That's interesting. Do you have a favorite song? No, I have a lot of favorite songs. I, I love yeah. music. And so I'm, I, yeah. and it goes from country to jazz to rock and roll. So I have a lot of favorites, but um, no, I, my preference is to have everything quiet. You drive in silence. That, that is something I did not know about you. And um, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I think you would be in the vast, you'd be one of six people on the planet who probably has <laughs> no sound on in their vehicle, uh, whether it's a, you're supposed to say most of the time when I'm driving, I'm listening to the Tom Shimmer podcast is what I'm doing. <laughs> That's fine. It's all good. <laughs> Next time you need an answer, just let me know. Yeah, I appreciate it. I do listen that. to the Tom Shimmer podcast when I'm on my treadmill. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> Question four, what's the luckiest thing that's ever happened to you? You just felt really lucky. Meeting you and Nicole oh. and building the assessment center. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, sometimes we get stressed with the work that we're trying to do and the way we're trying to change the world. But, the, but you know how many people don't have that opportunity to have this place in the world to be able to make that message known? So I feel very blessed and very fortunate in my life that I've been able to be surrounded by amazing um, intellectual people who have hearts of gold who are trying to make a difference and that we can rally our energies together to do that work. is It's a privilege. Well, Cassie, I, I do appreciate that. But listeners, honestly, I did not set that question up. Uh, that that <laughs> question was <laughs> that, that question was supposed to be, I found $50 under my tire at, at a parking stall one time or <laughs> something yeah, that like that. Happen to me. That happens to my siblings, but yeah. I was behind the door when someone was passing out luck. I was expecting one of your famous travel stories where uh, it actually worked out. Uh, listeners, we won't get into it, but Cassie has some of the most epic travel stories, uh, and we often talk about them, but uh, I've just had some lucky experiences with travel where I'm an hour late for my connection, but the plane I'm supposed to go on has been delayed, so I make my connection. Those are the types of lucky things that I was hoping that you would answer, but uh, I, I feel lucky as well, Cassie, and, and certainly our friendship and our work uh, together with Nicole is 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 really, really is a blessing. And uh, I just uh, am thankful for it as well. So thank you for going in that direction. I didn't expect that, but it was very, very kind. Uh, all right, last one. And uh, of course, tis the season. And I've been asking, I asked Tara last week, I asked Bill the previous week. This is the burning question that everybody has on their minds right now. And that is the question of Die Hard the movie. Is Die Hard the movie a Christmas movie? No. It happens at Christmas and there's a lot of joy at the end of it, but it's really not about Christmas as, as the main message. No. 
Yeah, see, th- I, I'm with you on this because I don't understand. Like, do I just have to put a Christmas tree in a scene and therefore <laughs> it's a Christmas movie? Like, what are we talking about here? There's no Christmas theme. There's no okay. They got a they got a tree up in the in the lobby of the the you know the 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 center or the hotel or the office building that they're in. Um, see, I can't even remember. I haven't seen the movie in so long. But so I I'm with you. I don't I don't understand. I honestly can't comprehend this idea that that Die Hard. This is not going to bode well for next week though, because now that the, the <laughs> you know when I'm you know talking about this. But but yeah, I know I'm with you. I, I I just don't see it as a Christmas movie at all. I think that uh, it's it's a stretch to call it a Christmas movie. So I, I agree with you. I'm glad finally somebody gets me and understands. <laughs> who understands where I'm at. All right. So one final question for you, Cass, is, is, uh, you know, I've asked this of everyone I've interviewed and uh, I've been really interested in people's perspective. One of the long-term themes I'm trying to explore with the podcast, and eventually we'll have some interview guests and, 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 and people on to talk more about this in general, but I'm really trying to look at this theme of success and happiness and what this means to us. So the, so the question is pretty simple. Uh, if you were, you know, stopped by a random person on the street, you're walking down the street, you stop by a random person and they asked you, what's your definition of success? What would you say? How would you answer them? You know, I've listened to your podcast and you've had some brilliant insights on this one. And I'm not sure I can be any more brilliant than what you've already heard. I guess it boils down to a single question to me. And that is, did I make a difference? And so I have three C's that try to guard uh, that I try to use to did I make a difference? One is confidence, and I don't mean that from this from the sense of chutzpah or anything like that, but more, do I like the company I keep? Am I comfortable in my own skin? Can I trust my gut, my instincts, my ability to learn? And do I feel efficacious? The second is courage. Am I willing to push myself to take risks, to challenge myself, to um, and, and constantly improve myself and the world around me? And the third is connections. Am I in right relationships with other people, with my community, with the planet? Am I honest and fair and true and just? Um, so it's really about, can I leave the world a better place than I found it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, that is a theme that, that many have talked about, which is just, you know, uh, what is my impact? What is my, what is my legacy on the people around me, the world around me? Um, I love that. And I think it, it puts us in a place where we feel grounded. We feel like we're making a contribution and a difference. Uh, in our world. Um, Cass, I, I, like I said with Nicole, I could do this all day. Uh, and, and often we do do this all day and talk assessment. And, and, uh, but I really appreciate you taking the time. I know your schedule is really busy right now. And, uh, you know, we thought with COVID things would slow down and things seem to be as busy, if not busier than they used to be. Uh, and, and it's, it's crazy. So I really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, listeners, I would encourage you really to follow uh, Cassandra on Twitter. Uh, Cassandra doesn't tweet as much as she should. Uh, I'll just put it that way. But when she does tweet, uh, there, there's just, it's just thoughtfulness, brilliance that, that comes out of, uh, of what she has to say and, and her approach to assessment. So her Twitter handle is at C Erkins. Uh, and also, of course, uh, Cassandra, along with the rest of our team, blogs and uh, 
uh, at the allthingsassessment.info. So it's www.allthingsassessment.info. That's the website where our team blogs and you'll find Cassie's blog posts there. And she has a number of just great posts that you can check out and you can sort them by authors. So if you want to check out some of Cassie's writings that way, uh, you can check those out as well. Again, Cassie, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Um, I know at some point, uh, like I said, we're going to do this again. I would love to do it with the three of us and, uh, and record one of our conversations just so maybe listeners can gain some insight as to how we all kind of work through all of that. So, but I would uh, like to switch that one and have Nicole and I interview you on the <laughs> No, it doesn't work that way. I have the microphone, therefore I have the conch. <laughs> But, um, you know, next time we're in the same room together, which who knows, 2024? I don't know. I don't know what we're looking at. Um, we, we all don't know. And I don't mean to make light of the current situation because it is stressful and tough on everybody, but we have to find some, some way of balancing that for ourselves. But um, like I said, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thanks, Tom. What an honor. In Assessment Corner this week, I received a question from Anne, who is a music teacher in Vancouver. Uh, Her question centered around uh, benchmarks and targets as they relate to year-end expectations. Now, to summarize the context of her question, uh, quote, this is what Anne wrote, at her school, she said, we've agreed that for mid-year and quarter-year reports, we need to report the levels of performance based on the expectations at the time of reporting. Otherwise, we would have too many students in the bottom two levels of our proficiency scale, you know, too many ones and twos, on that mid-year report. Uh, She goes on to say the reason they did that is because they found parents were overreacting to the ones and twos early in the year and going out and get tutors and and things like that. She continues. So on the other hand, she says, I teach a subject music where kids are kind of all over the map. Some will have already hit the year-end targets before before they start the year. Uh, Others will show a slow progression over the course of the year, but hopefully get to proficiency by the end of the year. And for this reason, she said, it's a whole lot easier to work with end of year targets. But again, she says, is this a misleading message to parents at the time of reporting? Okay, so that's the nature of the question. When working with year end expectations, you kind of have to make a choice and Clearly, Anne's school has made a choice in one direction, which is fine. I mean, there's basically two choices here. You either benchmark or you use year-end expectations right from the get-go. So each of them has an upside and a downside. So we're going to have to make a decision here about which one is less down than the other, I suppose. So let's start with benchmarking. This is what Anne's school is doing for most of the subjects. They're creating a beginning, a mid, and an end-of-year expectation. And so that comes with a trade-off. The upside, of course, is you avoid those low levels at the beginning of the year. Uh, But the potential downside is that students could get comfortable if we're not explicit with them. Like they, They could get comfortable with their achievement levels if we're not purposeful and explicit about how those expectations grow over time. Now, this is pretty easy to explain, actually, and I explain this a lot to parents and families uh, and even to students at times, just what this looks like visually. So if you have a a sheet of paper and a writing utensil handy, um, I'm going to walk you through a pretty simple, it might be oversimplified, but it's an easy way to get people to understand. And if you don't, just press pause right now, grab a sheet of paper, grab a writing utensil, and then I'm going to explain how this all works. Okay. So we want to turn the paper landscape so the edges, the long edges are at the top and the bottom, okay? So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to draw an arrow at a 45 degree angle, like diagonal. 
you're going to draw it from the bottom left-hand corner to the top right-hand corner, right? All the way up. Now, that arrow represents the expectations over time, right? So the bottom left-hand corner is the beginning of the year and end of year with the top right-hand corner. Now, I want you to put a letter B at the bottom left-hand corner where that arrow began, put an M at the midpoint of that arrow, and then put an E where the arrow finishes. And those three letters represent the beginning, the mid, and end of year expectations. Now, pick a point above the B about halfway up the page and draw a horizontal line all the way across the page, an arrow, okay? That arrow will cross that diagonal lane somewhere around, line, somewhere around the, uh, the midpoint. And that represents the quality of the student's demonstrations over time, right? So when you illustrate the first, the diagonal arrow and then the horizontal arrow, the message is if the quality of the demonstration that the student produces doesn't improve over time, their grade, their level, their score will in essence drop because they have to grow with the expectation, right? Because at the beginning of the year, they're you know, theoretically above where that arrow began, but by the end of the year, they're below it. So the quality has to increase with the increase in expectation. It's a pretty simple way to explain it. And almost every time I explain it, well, I shouldn't say almost, every single time I show that to parents, students, uh, teachers, it kind of clicks for them to go, okay, now I understand, right? So we have to grow as the expectations grow. And that's the that's the part about benchmarking that has to be thoroughly explained uh, to, to everyone involved. Now, the flip side is you could decide to use the year-end expectations, uh, but that also has a trade-off, right? So the upside of using the year-end expectations right off the bat is you get a more accurate view of where the student is with the real expectations of the class. But the downside, of course, as Anne pointed out, is that students, parents, and families, and, and others can predictably overreact to those low scores early or low levels or low grades or whatever term you want to use for it. They can overreact to those early in the year. So there's no definitive right answer to this question. I mean, either can be explained, as the key is to actually explain them thoroughly and make sure everyone's clear on how this works. The one non-negotiable for me, however, is that all teachers teaching at least the same grade level subject need to do this in, a, in the same way because inconsistency with this practice will be problematic. Okay, so back to Anne's question. I think there may be yet another solution that could bridge a little bit of this and make this a little bit more manageable, especially when it comes to classes like music and choir and drama and other sort of performing arts uh, or elective courses, right? Any elective course. And that is to create, you don't have to create anything, but just think of the years of the, the grade levels of the years of the course as a year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, right? So I happen to know that Anne's school uh, at the secondary level goes uh, grades eight through 12. So there's five years of secondary. So with the music program, there would be the grade eight curriculum would be sort of designated as year one nine would be year two. If you're in a nine through 12 high school, then you'd think of it as, you know, ninth grade would be year one, 10th grade would be year two, et cetera, and so on. So the, the nothing is created. You, you use the same outcomes and expectations, but you designate them as years, right? So that way, as students enter, you can pre-assess them, their, their abilities. And of course, if they've been with you for a few years, then you would know. 
but you pre-assess them and then you tailor the expectations to personalize it to their level. This also actually really helps with students who want to enter late in the game. I remember having this conversation with a choir teacher and says, you know, I'm really struggling because I have grade 11 students who want to join choir, but they're nowhere near being able to meet the expectations of, of, of the 11th grade curriculum. And, I, and that, that, this is kind of where that idea came from years ago, which is to say, well, what if they worked on the ninth grade expectations? And you just said that ninth, this is with nine to 12 high school, ninth grade was year one, 10th grade was year two, 11th grade year three, year four. So even if you join as a, a grade 11 student, you're working on the year one expectations, which were ninth grade. So it allows students to enter into the course after that very first time in, in Anne's case in grade eight, but in other high schools, it would be ninth grade. So that way you, you're able to tailor the expectations for where that student is. I mean, you do whatever you have to do to make the report card work and logistically we'll have to, you know, maybe they're registered in a grade 10 course, for example, but they're working on grade eight outcomes or something like that. And that may have implications on other sort of external things like honor roll and other, uh, those other things. Look, the conversation about honor roll, that's a different conversation, and we can have that conversation another time, but it still exists in many schools. And so I just want to say that that may be something you have to think about in terms of the ramifications. And we can explore the whole concept of honor roll uh, in maybe another assessment corner. Electives are trying to build programs. So I think we want to try to make our electives as inviting as possible, and we don't want you know, the, the, the strict adherence to grade level expectations to get in the way of these kinds of meaningful experiences that students can have. So I know I would do whatever it, it took to make this a as inviting as possible and to the best of our ability, try to personalize this uh, for students. I know that may be a lot to manage in terms of multiple expectations, but often these elective courses and these fine arts or performing arts courses are multi-grade level anyway because of the numbers. It depends on the size of your school, of course, but a lot of times you'll have all grade levels kind of represented uh, you know, in, in the, the jazz band or, or something like that. So I tend to lean toward benchmarking, uh, even in Anne's situation, because I just think the downside of using year-end expectations, in my opinion, outweighs the downside of benchmarking. Right. I just think that there's it's just it, it just is to me, it's, you know, it's an unreasonable expectation to say we have a, an end of year expectation and we're grading it, grading you or assessing you on it now. That to me just feels uh, a little unreasonable. Now, there is still the issue of the students who are already there or close to it on day one. So if you went to that yearly curriculum, then, you know, you'd be able to have students working toward challenging but attainable outcomes or goals. So a lot of thoughts there, and I know I meandered a little bit, uh, but here's what I would say uh, definitively. First, all things being equal, I would still use benchmarks because the downside of using benchmarks to me is still more favorable than the downside of using year-end. I just think benchmarks are more reasonable and more fair uh, given where the students are in their progression. Now, for those who have high achievement right from the get-go, just I, I try to de-emphasize the issue of grades and just say to them, look, you're good. You're, you're at the top. That's protected. Now, let me push you as a musician and focus on your personal growth. You're, 
your your mark, your grade, the report card, that's all protected. You're there. You're you're well above that. So you're good. Um, so I, I, I get that they might be at the top from the get-go, but we really do have to stop sort of looking to or at least feeding the beast of this single mark or grade as being the motivator. Um, you know, unlike classes where students are forced to take them, uh, most students who are in classes like music who are high achieving from the get-go are probably there because they have an inherent sort of passion or love of that subject or that that discipline. Um, so we want to ramp up this idea of personal growth and 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 personal best. And then the third piece is I would consider long term shifting to that yearly curriculum. Um, again, if you're concerned about the students near the top who need or want some tangible outcomes to work toward, then you can start to kind of maneuver it that way. Um, there is no single right answer to capture all of the complexities of, of this, but I think the year-end outcomes need benchmarking to ensure that our assessment evidence and, and what we ultimately report reflects where a student is and, and not where we want them to be in six to nine months. That's all for today. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. And also please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions for the podcast. Your feedback is most welcome. The email address is TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Eric Francis. Eric is known for his expertise with Norman Webb's Depth of Knowledge Framework. So trust me, it's going to be a deep dive into all things DOK. Again, thanks for joining me this week. Remember, one more to go before we take the two-week hiatus. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. It would be greatly appreciated. And also, please spread the word. I'd love to continue to expand the listening audience. Have a great week, everyone.